2: Welcome to the Capital Club podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm and the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn.
3: Hello and welcome to the
1: conversation today I have with me Jeff Getty. Jeff is the Managing Director of KeyBag's Family Wealth Consulting Team. He has over 25 years of experience working with entrepreneurs, business owners, and executives, designing and implementing sophisticated, innovative asset protection, tax reduction, and estate planning strategies. Over the last decade, Jeff has had more than eight billion in transactional experience and private offerings and equity and debt, mergers and acquisitions, reorganizations and spin-offs for closely held and family owned businesses. Jeff, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, who's gonna be the next quarterback for the Steelers? <laughs> Let's talk about the really important stuff.
3: You know, I really wasn't ready for that question, but I should have been. <laughs>
1: my the people that i know you know i'm in nashville and there's a bunch of old school steelers fans here before the titans came yeah. and everyone's saying jimmy garoppolo but we'll have to see the future the future will tell us what can yeah, i say absolutely so jeff thanks for joining us and i'm excited to get into this with you we're recording it q1 of 2022 2021 obviously was just a gangbusters year in terms of MA and and activity and ipos etc now with the benefit of of like hindsight, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking this to, to
3: riff on what we talked about earlier. What was that year like for you all? So uh, super busy year on our end. Just, I've been with Key for 10 years and actually started the consulting practice here 10 years ago. And it was by far and away our busiest year. The prior year was about 70% of that deal flow. And going into this year, even, it's still on a very strong trajectory. So it's busy times these days. And
1: now that we're entering into 2022, has there been crossover? Have you seen that bleed into this year or things calm down a little bit and people are taking a breath?
3: So I usually answer that question in the context of kind of a a longer scope thought process, right? And I usually talk about this as part of an overall market cycle. So we are in a very long cycle of expansion with the M&A field. And, you know, even though there are some headwinds, which I'm potential headwinds, I'm happy to talk about, things appear to be still going very strong. We had a big rush at year end with the anticipated tax law change, which kind of fizzled out. So at the very end of the year, we had a couple people kind of retract and stop, but they've restarted already because most People believe, rightly or wrongly, that the concept or the idea of taxes going up is probably more likely than not still to happen. And ergo, it probably makes more sense if you were on the fence or ready to launch. It just didn't quite get it done by the end of year last year. You want to do it now, so we are still seeing that big push and a lot of activity, even early in the first quarter of 2022. So, you, you all are internally forecasting. You personally believe that there will be a, a tax change. So we're not really forecasting that. I'm saying kind of what we're hearing on the street. I was a little bit surprised so little happened last year. I mean, I tend to look at tax issues and tax policy over more than a one to two year period. So if we take a step back and look at the historical tax rates inside the United States, and apply them today. We're still at historically very low levels, and even though we might see a slight retraction or movement the other direction if the political landscape changes a bit, long term and by long term I mean in the next four to five years, tax rates, in my personal opinion, are likely to go up. And just as evidenced by that, Congress's inability to get something done will will cause the sunset provisions to kick in in 2025, which means we will go back to a higher tax rate if nothing is done in 2025. So that's why I say, and it, is it this year? Maybe, maybe not. But we do know the next couple of years, couple of three years, it'll go back to those higher rates anyway. So we've been hearing all of us
1: in the financial services space about this coming Generational shift from baby boomers to millennials, which my dad is 70. He decided to hang it up this year. Uh, A little surprisingly, honestly, he's an attorney at a small firm in New York. We've been hearing about this shift. It seems like it's now starting to actually play out in real time. A lot of folks that are in our world on the investor side are small business owners and entrepreneurs. In your experience, what are some of the common mistakes that sellers make when they go into one of these transactions? And and how does your firm come into play on the front end?
3: Yeah, it's a it's a pretty big question. So unfortunately my answer is gonna be kind of long. But, you know, we actually have a piece we send out pretty frequently with the top 10 mistakes business owners make, and it's primarily geared towards this kind of conversation. But as an overall thread or schematic, there's two main points I I like to start off with, which is not knowing what the process looks like. So there's an education component and inadvertently, which the second would be inadvertently starting a process without really understanding they've gotten into a process. So let's tackle the second one first, because it's a little more amorphous for most people to hear that. And what I mean by that is inside the middle market and lower middle market space, that's somewhat interchangeable terms, but let's say definitionally that's enterprise value of a business between five and a hundred million dollars, right? About, in our experience, about 50% of the deals start off with an unsolicited offer. Right. That's a PE group calling them and saying, hey, we love your business. We'd like to make you an offer. Or it's a strategic buyer that the client, happen, the owner happens to run into at a conference or a trade show. They're hanging out. They're talking have a few drinks and it's, hey, we really love your business. We know you must be thinking about doing something. Let's talk about that. If those conversations are not handled appropriately, the client, in my experience, will inadvertently get themselves into a process without knowing they're really in a process. And it can start as simply as, well, ballpark owner, what do you think you want to get out of that deal? What would be the value you think you want to get for that business? Once that has been thrown out, that's a start of a process, whether a client really appreciates it or not. So from our perspective, and I could literally spend a half hour going through a bunch of different scenarios, or examples, and thought processes. For us, the biggest issue we try to get to clients early on and business owners that we know is just get educated on how the process works and what it means, how to appropriately respond to those sorts of things. And really try to determine or become self-aware, is this something you want to explore or is it something you want to defer to deflect for a period of time? You just need to know what you're walking into. You need to understand that you really should have a definitive opinion. And the hard part about that is, is in my experience, most business owners will have a number that gets them interested. So if I've been bumping along thinking my business is worth $10 million and suddenly I'm approached by a strategic or, or a PE group that says, hey, we love your business. And based on what we know, we, we think you'd be willing to offer, and this is a little bit ridiculous, $20 million for your business. Even if I wasn't ready to do something because the numbers doubled, I thought I'd get, I'm interested. I want to have that conversation. I want to start that dialogue. And that's human nature to want to do it. And it's also human nature to want to be overly expansive in the response.
1: So, and I talked about this with a friend who's a CPA that does a lot of transactional work. Oftentimes, entrepreneurs, especially first generation business creators, owners misconstrue what their compensation actually is, mm-hmm. given what they use the business for. So how do you walk clients through understanding your take home salary plus your bonus is not necessarily your all in comp and you're also going to have to live on this, you know, 10, 20 plus years in the future?
3: Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And it's actually a really interesting or good starting point that leads into how we try to get most conversations started. So the two most important questions, a business owner, before they go into some sort of transaction conversation, they should really be focusing on answering is, what is the true value of my business? And what do I need to take out of that, to your point, the deal, so to speak, to replace that business? So that requires an education process to. First and foremost, valuation and valuation methodology with respect to deal analytics. So I oftentimes have to educate clients that, hey, the methodology one would use to value a business for buy-sell purposes, for a divorce, for tax purposes, for gifting, estate taxes, whatever that case may be, is significantly different than the methodology one would use for a transaction. And part of that's the very issue you're getting at, which is, hey, do you really have a good handle for what you're taking out. So as an example, clients oftentimes are somewhat familiar to very familiar with the concept of multiples of EBITDA inside their business. So inside the transaction space, I should say. So what they'll do, they'll Google this and say, okay, inside my industry, the average multiple is let's say seven, right? And they look at their EBITDA number unadjusted, right? There's nothing been done to There's looking at the profitability, what they're pulling out on some level. Maybe it's not too honed in, but they know kind of what they're taking, at least on a comp side, straight comp side. And they'll say, oh, I have an EBITDA of a million, ergo, my business is worth seven. Seven times the DBA. What I think you're getting at is this issue, which ties into both what I need and what I'm actually getting, which is hey, let's take a harder look at what you're actually taking out, right? So, are you running through your country club membership? Do you take vacations through the business? Are your kids on the payroll? Are you over or underpaying yourself? In our experience, that's a mixed bag. Some clients we deal with overpay themselves. And when I say overpay themselves, it's the context of if you're going to buy my business from me and I'm paying myself let's say $500,000 a year in salary bonus, you're not going to hire me, a person like me to, to run the business for you. You're going to hire somebody who might be paid $200,000, $250,000. So that differential should actually add back into EBITDA and as an adjustment, it increased overall purchase price. So they're interrelated issues for sure. And Again, going back to the education component, you know, explaining all this to a business owner as they're thinking about a process can be a little bit daunting or challenging. But, you know, once we get past some of the early stage conversations, it gets a lot easier when they start seeing how that stuff interconnects and flows.
1: And on a related note, how difficult it is, is it to talk business owners through what that that transaction looks like on a gross versus a net after
3: tax basis? Oh, okay. That's a big one. (laughs) So you're talking to a guy who started his career as a tax attorney and specifically structuring a lot of deals from a transactional space. So I usually start off with, once we get past the issues of value, valuation, methodology, and what you're likely to get offered in a deal, and then we get to the point of, okay, this is what you're taking out of the business. This is what you need to get out of the deal, right? Hopefully those numbers are in parity or what you need to get out is is, is less than what you actually get. So you actually get more, right? To how do we adjust those numbers? So oftentimes that's like a raw number you go through and say, okay, my business, is valued out of the transaction, let's say $15 million, we do the math and say, I really need 17. We'll make it fairly close to replace the business with liquid net assets to meet their, their cash flow obligations. Sometimes we can close that gap through tax plan, right? And when I talk to clients about tax planning, we talk about four different areas of tax overlaid over what are oftentimes three different distinct time periods within a transaction. So very quickly, what does look like? We have the potential of, in some states, some states we don't have this, but a state income tax application, We could have a federal transfer tax. So if we're looking a little bit further down the chessboard, right, there might be a federal transfer tax issue. We also talk about federal cap gains tax and also federal income taxes, depending on the nature of the deal and the nature of the underlying assets. So we could have different tax rates depending on how assets are allocated in an asset deal versus a stock deal, which would be a straight, flat, more or less flat tax rate. We overlay that analysis around the three distinct windows of time, which are what are you going to do pre-sale to reduce overall tax burden to the deal time itself when you're in negotiations, typically around the due diligence process, how are we doing allocations to purchase price, right? That's part of the last part of the transaction is allocations, which can have significant differences attached to them with respect to rate. And then the last piece is what do we do when the dust settles that's left to take care of on the backside, right? So a lot of clients we get to kind of late in the tax planning methodology because we're referred or brought in late and, or we're somewhat limited what we can do pre-sale or even during the sale. And then it becomes more of a, okay, the sale's over, you're going to net X, right? And they sometimes didn't even know what that net number would look like. And then how do we adjust that with post-sale tax strategy work? Are right? there ways to whittle away the tax number? As an overall schematic, how I typically start the conversation is at the end of the day, If they haven't had a financial pro forma done for them, what the tax impact might look like on a particular deal, I'd say to make the math really simple, you're going to be more likely than not taxed with an effective rate somewhere between 25 and 35% with federal, state, local, all that. Now, we can nuance like, hey, I live in a tax-free income state, right? Like, but for general purposes, I've been doing this a long time. That's under current tax law a fairly safe window. Most clients will nod head and say, okay, that makes sense. They say, okay, I am completely confident that if we have enough time, meaning we're not getting called in the day before the deal closes, that we can, through planning, reduce that number down to single-digit tax Been doing this a long time. It's really not that hard to achieve that sort of number. So we might say you're in a 30, we'll take the mid-road, you're in a 30%. Would you be interested in exploring options and ideas to take you down into like seven or 8%? The answer is almost always yes. And then it's okay. Let me walk you through how that might look. And then we kind of lay out different strategies and thought processes to get there. Having said all that, when we get to that point, the client might not like limitations on access or where the money typically goes or different nuance and things like that. But we try to get people focused in on here's your issue. Here's kind of the rough idea of in the best case scenario, we can get that too. Most coins don't get to that point. They're somewhere in the middle, but we feel pretty confident with enough time we can get that number. So ideally, I mean, that's obviously a very
1: attractive and compelling value proposition for most people. Mm-hmm. If, you could, if you could wave the magic wand and get in the time machine, what's the right time to engage with a firm like yours to do it right in a timely manner so you're not coming in at the 11th hour and
3: running around and you're not going to get the full benefit of the service? So the best answer to that question is the day you set up your business, the day we should start talking about how you're going to exit it, right? Now, I've been doing this a long time. That's I only ever see that when I'm on a second crack of the app, right? Somebody sold their business, they start a new one. They've learned from me the first go around what they missed. So I would say the best case scenario we could run into is we're at least two tax years before the transaction. So let's say anywhere from 24 to 36 months before a transaction occurs, gives us enough window of time and opportunity to whittle that number down to a restart. You mentioned
1: valuation, valuation methodology. Has that changed at all over your career? Have you seen
3: shifts or or trends? You mean in the approach to it or the approach? Okay. yeah. Yeah. So Yes and no. I don't think underlying that issue, there's been massive change in how the methodology works through. I was not a finance major, but I know most finance majors are taught something called the Gordon Growth Model, which is a model that underlies discounted cash flow, typically discounted cash flow valuation on a forward-looking basis, that is really geared towards a publicly traded company with a relatively stable growth rate and a very stable debt service rate, okay. Which that's kind of in a very rough sketch how I would view that model, and that's how most people I think were trained to to come up with a uh, forward-looking project, overlaying a forward-looking projection on a discounted cash flow, what a business is worth. What's changed, particularly in this space, is the application of the more realistic underlying financial metrics to closely held businesses, which are entirely different than a publicly traded business, right? Uh, so the methodology that was used when I first got started in this business tended to be very much geared towards the standard textbook valuation from a methodology standpoint for publicly traded companies, and I'm sure that still exists. If I worked in that space with publicly traded companies, I'm sure they're still using something very similar to what I saw early on in my career. But today we see substantially different methodology utilized that's based more on PE models, right? And overlaid with, I think, more realistic growth assumptions and debt assumptions for the closely held space. So it's kind of a wordy answer to your question. It has changed fairly dramatically in some ways, but in other ways, it's it's been somewhat consistent.
2: Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com.
1: I want to revisit a comment that you made earlier about the difference between a serial entrepreneur and a first time entrepreneur who have gone through you know multiple cycles or, or transactions what are some of the other characteristics or fact patterns that you see in a serial entrepreneur at their second or third time at bat versus the first one in terms of organization metrics kpis thought process and how they organize things on the front end what are what are the best practices that you've seen play out that guys that know how to build these things and sell them
3: yeah so they they're going to spend a lot more time not just building um, just straight growth pattern to more gr- gr- building and growing towards an exit thought process, right? So it's not just pure growth. I would say it's growth geared towards an exit. So a couple of metrics or examples I can point to with that—they're more likely than not to engage in structural and tax planning, barely early stage. So one of the things we might do, for example, in a lot of deals is look at ways to spin off certain assets or change up the corporate structure prior to sale. The impact of those movements would be much more significant had we been able to do that much earlier stage. So if there's intellectual property, there's real estate attached to the business or could be attached to the business, like there's certain maneuvering we would do there. And the structure in and of itself, like do I pick using an LLC versus this versus that? Less so, except with respect to right now, and I'm not sure this will last forever, QSBS stock, which is original, but basically the way to exclude $10 million in gain on C corporation stock, which came about in the 2017 tax act. That's kind of new, right? So people who kind of at this point, a lot of them have backed into it. They started with the C corp and that's how they ended up or an LLC taxed as a C. But today we're seeing, you know, people at the second crack at the app or starting to, to do that upfront because they believe it'll still be there when they transact. And they're looking at ways to get multiple cracks at the app. So the, the law originally drafted or it's drafted really contemplated. If you and I started a business, we would each get to exclude $10 million a gain. What we're seeing and what we're advising clients to do, are there ways to get multiple exclusions? So you and I would hold, you know, the first 10 million dollars worth of gain individually. And then I'll set up a trust for my kids and you'll set up a trust for your kids. That's another ten percent exclusion. Then we'll set up another trust that looks like this. So, you know, you don't necessarily have to do that in inception, but it's more powerful if you do that at inception. So we see things like that with the serial entrepreneurs. That's really important. The other things we'll see from them is they do a better job building out their financials, right? They do a better job at becoming what I call inconsequential owners. And this is a really key point. The value of a business increases in inverse to the amount of involvement the owner has. And the the less complex way to say that is the less important I am to -to day-to-day operations, the more valuable the business is to you as a potential purchaser. Because your goal ultimately is to buy me out, get me out, and then you overlay your own methodology to create a higher growth pattern than I've received. So if I can early on build a management team around my business that they're just as involved in sales and, and client metrics and client engagement and vendor engagement as I could ever be, preferably more. They're the ones that the trade shows, right? And it's not just about me. They realize they get more value for that business that they do. So we see things like that that also have an impact and makes a change over than someone who's doing going at it for the first time. So let's pull back a little bit and mm-hmm. widen the lens. We mentioned this early on in the conversation.
1: M&A activity was, you know, historic high last year. In your opinion and experience, what was driving that? I'm sure it's multifaceted, but would love to hear your thoughts
3: there. Yeah, so it's a couple factors and those factors it also is a good segue to where we see potential headwinds in the future. I, I'm not smart enough to realize exactly when this will hit, but you'll see the inverse relationship of why these could be some of these issues could become headwinds. So first and foremost, there's a demographic issue inside the United states, right? Small Business Administration reports which we watch very closely Tells us there's roughly 368 million, 360,000, sorry, businesses inside the United States that have have, uh, sales between five and $100 million, are closely held, and have at least one employee. So, kind of the space we typically inhabit in, in the work I do. Of that, about two thirds of those businesses are owned by baby boomers which gives us a time zone of when those businesses are going to transition or transact regardless of what somebody wants to do. It's just an age-based issue. So demographics to this point, and particularly last year, drove activity because the boomers were looking at this saying, if I'm going to exit valuations that are all-time high, there's plenty of roll-up going on in my industry, I've survived COVID, I don't want to go through another down cycle, 70, 75, 80, whatever timeframe you're in. So there's, a, there's an ownership demographic that's driving it. The other side of that sort of the flip side of that coin is we will hit a point where inventory of available businesses increases to such a level that it should push valuation down to some extent. So that's one factor that's actually probably the biggest one out there. The other major factors that we see, one we've already talked about a little bit, historically low tax rates, right? So that's another one that if tax rates flip. We're going to see some compression or some harder things to navigate through because business owners will be, feel less likely or less willing to transact, or it'll become more expensive to transact. So it becomes a, a push downward of value or ability to move forward. And then the the other two pieces are kind of interrelated. One is the relatively historically low, very low interest rates. Right, most deals are financed through debt. And as long as debt's cheap, which even though we expect interest rates to continue to tick up this year to deal with the inflationary pressure, even so, they're still really low. So it makes deals Cheaper to do, which means there's more room to increase value and offers. And then beyond that, although it's somewhat related, just the general availability of what people typically refer to as dry powder, particularly in the PE space, where you know there's money being pushed into these firms and these funds to be deployed. They need to be deployed. That's part of it. The other piece you see is. The strategic buyers, in order to hit their growth models or the growth they want to see, typically have to do acquisitions. There's only so much organic growth they can get inside their firm. And then the last type of buyer that's also catching on to this or or tagged into this is the growth of single-family offices. So you have all these liquidity events occurring. You have a certain percentage of those liquidity events being driven into a single-family office environment. By definition, they're probably starting to look more like PE businesses, PE funds just held by one family, and now they're looking to quit their cap. So there's a whole bunch of factors that are kind of pushing and pushing and pushing. Headwinds, interest rates continue to creep up. That's going to hurt cash related to this becomes less available. People retract. So they're feeling worse about the economy. Right? There's this snowball or spiral effect that if we're at the I don't know if we're at the top of the cycle. We've already started down the downward slope. We're still getting to the top. I mean that's that's a crystal ball issue but you know those issues exist but right now at this particular moment in time things look pretty good stuff.
1: yeah one editorial comment I believe family offices are now becoming their own asset class in, mm-hmm. in many ways and they are competing directly with private equity for human capital and for deal flow and, and all of the above and there, it's only going to continue in my opinion so you're 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 going to to see them be a real player
3: within this space I think for the next 10 20 years. So I'll give you a metric that might m- might help with that thought process. You know, 10 years ago, the idea that a single family office would make an acquisition as someone we're working with was kind of unheard of. I mean, I knew what single family offices were. I just never dealt with one. About 10 to 20% of the deals we see in any particular year are single family office driven. Big increases, right? In, in real players. And it used to be people would say, well, it's patient capital, so they pay less. Not really, not anymore. That that gap is closed. Just kind of like the gap between PE and strategic, have have narrowed and closed. I would argue that single family offices and PE have closed fairly dramatically as well. Yeah, I, I I would absolutely agree with that. So I mean, we're we're kind of winding
1: down the the conversation here. I guess looking back at, at your career, you know, we we talked about common characteristics of of successful groups, but what are some of the big? Don't step in this pothole. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is probably a very, very long answer that you could give me, but I'd love to hear your top two or three things that you've just seen over and over again that if a small business owners listen to the show can take a step back and think, okay, I'm going to make sure I don't fall into that pit hole and, 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 you know, be able to structure my business successfully for an exit.
3: Yeah. I think the the largest single downward driver of value relates to, in my experience, Financials, right? And we kind of create business owners kind of create their own problem in this, in the sense of if you have a good advisor or a good CFO or a good comptroller working with a good tax advisor, they've spent years helping you build a business that, for tax purposes, you're trying to minimize income and profitability, right? Because the more profitable business is, from an annual overall cash flow perspective, more money coming out the higher the taxes typically are imposed on. So you spend a lot of time building a structure and infrastructure and a reporting structure that drive to that issue. Well, that is the complete 180 from what you want to present in financials to a buyer, right? Because at the end of the day, you're trying to show as high as profitability as possible. So the concept of doing some level of financial restatement, EBITDA adjustments, everything across the board, right? to to make those financials attractive as possible. It's not keeping a second set of books. It's just understanding how a buyer would view that and put it in the best light for them to view it. That's probably the biggest issue it relates to the unsolicited offer where someone says, oh, when well, to make an offer, we need to see your financials and I just send you my what I'll call your tax financials. That probably drives more compression or push down of value than anything else that I see historically. Somewhat related to that, is just the general quality of financial reporting, right? So I usually tell people wherever you're at in your financial statement preparation, go up a level. It would audit it, reviewed whatever it is the next step where you are today, you're going to get paid back something to go up to the next level. And it's also probably worthwhile for you to have someone come in who has ability to look at your financials and say, yes, you can present these to a buyer, a sophisticated buyer and they're going to be okay with this form and format and it's going to lead to a better conversation, which is a better result. like that's that's really, really important because if I send you junk, in my financials, you're not probably going to want to make an offer. if you do, it's going to be pretty low. I somewhat analogize this, although I use this analogy beyond just financials. It's kind of like if you bought or sold a house. You just don't get up one day and say, I'm going to sell my house. You typically have a real estate agent come in before you list the house and say, Look around, tell me what you think the value is. Tell me what you think the value could be. And what do I have to fix to get to that value? The broken door on the cabinet. The, I need a new kitchen, right? That's going to take me six months to then list my house. But if I do this right, I'll get paid that back by some multiple. So, you know, that idea of coming in and doing a hard look. So that would be the first issue, financials. The other thing I would say, which again, kind of flows in with that is the failure to do any sort of pre-due diligence process. So one of the major issues that most clients don't understand is they believe that when you go to market. That the letter of intent is the kind of the end of the negotiation, the binding letter of intent. And for us, the binding letter of intent, I always tell people that's kind of at best the midpoint, right? Two things happen then. One, the, the who's in charge, who has negotiation power flips. It goes from buyer to, I'm sorry, from seller to buyer at the binding letter of intent. And then that's when due diligence starts. That's when the deal gets renegotiated. So I tell people you should really find someone to come in and do an evaluation of your company with a lens towards due diligence. I we call it pre-due diligence, we do for clients, where we're going to come in as a buyer group thought process, look over the business, do the interviews and everything else that a buyer would do, and then come back to the owner and say, here's your issues right? Here's the things that a buyer's going to see. And because you owner probably have what's known as cognitive dissonance, you can't see these issues. But We can see them and show them to you. And then we can place a value as to what that would cost you if you don't fix or address them, right? I'd say the last piece also somewhat related to that is really letting people understand that this whole process, being very forthright in presenting things in a a consistent, logical, and realistic manner is super important. Like people want to lay out the best case scenario, which I'm 100% on board with, but it's very easy to cross over a line where a buyer might look at something you said or Represented to them in the negotiation that they find out later wasn't a hundred percent accurate. Then they really wanted. To do. Well, what else did? Do? So those would be the big kind of handful of hodgepodge of things I see as problematic. There's many more we could talk about, but those are the big ones that I see. The tip.
1: That's tremendous. You know, Jeff, I want to thank you for the time. This has been just great, and, and I blind message you on LinkedIn because your content is so good, and this conversation <laughs> was terrific. If people are interested, well, before I get to that. The question I like to ask folks like you, if you're a small business owner, entrepreneur, and you're thinking about selling, or you're thinking about
3: exit, who's at the kitchen table to have the conversation? Who do you need to make sure is in the room? Wow. So it, it kind of depends on what type of process you're going to go through. So I have different answers if you're going to just start a conversation with a patent, with a buyer's already knocking your door versus you want to create an auction versus you just want to talk to two or three people. But at its core, the bare minimum you need is One, you need to have a really good financial CPA slash tax person who can really help you navigate through, are your financials in order, are your tax situation in order? And that could be one person in a lot of cases, right? Like a good CPA who really knows their stuff can handle a lot of that. So you definitely need somebody like that. Two, you need a really strong lawyer to paper that deal, right? That doesn't mean you have to go to the most expensive and largest firm in town, but it means you got to have somebody who knows a ton about M&A and knows the pitfalls and how to paper a deal properly. And then the last piece, and this is a little bit variable depending on what type of transaction you're looking at doing, you need to have some sort of M&A advisor. There's really three types. There are business brokers, right, who typically are falling in a window under the space we've been talking about. They're the ones when you you want to buy or sell a restaurant or things like that. They typically handle those types of deals. Then at the upper end, you have investment bankers that are typically handling, let's say, this is a sliding scale depending on the type of investment bank. Let's say like 50 million up. Typically, that's investment banking territory. But there's this large zone of that five to 50 where it's too big for a business broker. It's too small for a really good investment banking firm. And that's where you have to find an MA advisor who can help walk you through it. They're typically not falling into one of those camps. We generally consider ourselves in that zone advisor. So depending on the size of your business and what you're trying to accomplish would dictate that third category, but those are the bare minimum. We have other pieces, and parts that come into play depending on the complexity and the type of deal. So one other thing I'll just throw out there, intellectual property. If your business is heavy on intellectual property, you need to have an IP lawyer do an IP audit for you. And if you don't, you need to have them at the deal table because that's going to save you a ton of headache and time and money on the backside of a deal. Uh
1: Awesome, Jeff. This has been terrific. I want to thank you for the time. And, and like I said, I pinged you because your content's so good on LinkedIn. And I do a lot of work with KeyBank on the commercial side and I respect the firm a lot. If people are interested in engaging with you and learning more about the firm and the services and the content you're creating, what's the best way for them to get in touch?
3: Yeah. So if you happen to know someone inside of KeyBank, I would reach out to your relationship manager inside of KeyBank. They will get you to me and they'll probably help shepherd you there faster. I do follow my LinkedIn. So if you find me on LinkedIn, I will respond to you. Or I'm trying to think, you could go on key.com. You could find it there. Those are probably the best ways. It's not like I hide my number. I'm happy to provide that if somebody wants it. Or if you want it, it's uh, 412-303-4521. That is my cell. Uh, You can text me or call me. Again, 412-303-4521. I am happy to talk with almost anyone. I'll say that almost. (laughs) Uh, for about a half hour, right? Like I, I do a lot of what I consider early stage education. So if you have a question you want to throw at me, I can't guarantee I'll talk to you today, but I'm happy to take the call, happy to have a conversation. If there's a way for us to work together, I'll tell you what that is. And if I think there's a better avenue for you, I will tell you what that is. You know, we're our practice is growing. We're doing exceptionally well. I'm always looking for more stuff, but I'm also, I'm smart enough and old enough and got enough gray hair to know if it's not a good fit for me, I don't take it so I'm pretty, I'm very unelectual about that.
1: Terrific, Jeff. Well, well, thank you for the time. And, uh, you know, hopefully I can sense some folks your way and keep out, keep on producing that great content. I really appreciate it.
3: Oh, uh, thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a lot of fun. I hope we get the chance to connect again soon. Yeah, absolutely. Take care. All right. Be well.
2: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.